if you would like to and you have a Bible uh, with you, you can turn to John chapter 17, where we want to continue our study that we began um, last Sunday on the Lord's Prayer, the unfinished work of Christ. So the Lord's Prayer is not that one we commonly think of. Our Father which art in heaven, how would be thy name? That's the disciples' prayer. But this is truly the Lord's Prayer in that our Lord is actually doing uh, the praying. This is the conclusion, John chapter 17, to what teachers call the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse is chapter, our chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Five chapters in the Gospel of John. And so he does his, he unbears his heart, his soul, what God wants his disciples to be. Uh, and then he finishes that and he goes out as we saw last week. And then he utters this prayer. If you follow Jesus' teaching in John 13 to 16, I think you'll discover that uh, what Jesus had spoken God to them, he now prays to God of them. So he taught it to them. Now he's praying for them and of them. As we think of uh, Bible study, one of the tools I like to use, just something I've done as long as I can remember being a Christian, I always like to think through a book of the Bible before I get into it. I like to get the overall thought, the theme, the movement. Then, like in the Gospel of John, I'd like to get one word that I use for every chapter in John 21. So if you would tell me uh, any chapter, John 13, John 15, John, I got a word that automatically tells me what's in that chapter. And if you came to John 17 and asked me what's in that chapter, the words I've chosen are the great high priest, because that's what we're dealing with here as Jesus is our advocate, our intercessor. Now, John 17 really is more of a foreview of his high priestly ministry, which Jesus will not officially assume until his ascension in Acts chapter uh, 2. So that's where the title of the series comes from of the three weeks, The Unfinished Work of Christ. And the unfinished work of Christ then began in Acts 2 as the great high priest, the one who intercedes for us uh, constantly before the throne of grace. Now in John 17, we saw last week that it kind of just moves through like a, uh, a beautiful one-piece uh, uh, robe, as it were. But there's three movement to it. In verses 1 to 8, he prays for himself. In verses 9 to 19, he prays for his 11 apostles. Judas Iscariot has left the other room. He's no longer with them. He prays for his, uh, his own, his loving. And then Lord willing, next week, we'll see in verses 20 to 26, uh, is where he prays for those who future tense shall believe on me through their word. And so he prays uh, for the church. And I think that's going to be a, a very moving portion of scripture as you contemplate the thought that Jesus, you can read what Jesus prayed for you uh, even as you sit here uh, in the church pews or chairs. Warren Wearsby calls John 17 the holiest of holies. And if you have any working knowledge of the Old Testament, you fully uh, enter into that. He also calls it, as I would attest to, the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in the scripture. 
And so when you think of the holiest of holies, where God dwells, the presence of God, you can understand why we say we need to come to this in a great spirit of humility, a great spirit of submission, and one of worship as well. Um, years ago, when we used to have an annual conference with Good News Jail and Prison Ministry, um, and we'll have one, Lord willing, three weeks from today or two weeks from today, I'll be leaving uh, for that down in uh, Charlotte. But we used to end the conference uh, and all join hands, and we'd sing the same song at the close uh, of every conference. And it was just a very moving and a powerful time and, and a wonderful song to sing about the holiest of holies. Jerome Davis uh, was a 19-year-old son of a pastor. And uh, he was a musician. His dad was the senior pastor. And they were in a church building program. And so the pastor asked his son, Jerome, he said, uh, son, I'd like you to write a song, and you and your brothers, your two brothers, sing it at the service of the dedication of the building, uh, which would have been from that time about six months. Well, weeks went by and months went by, and dad's being dad would say to his son, uh, son, have you got that song done yet? Uh, not yet, Dad, but I'm thinking, I'm praying. Okay, son, do you have the song done yet? Well, it's not quite finished yet, Dad. So we come to Saturday night before the dedicatory service of the building. And finally, the son sits down. And being a gifted musician, he prays and had been praying. And he uh, writes the words to this song that then he and his brothers sang the next morning. You've heard it, I'm sure, if you listen to Christian music. We are standing on holy ground, and we know that there are angels all around. Let us praise Jesus now, for we are standing in his presence on holy ground. Such a beautiful song. And that's where I feel we are today. And I know where I am that I've been just saturating my mind and heart in this for months. Every time I come to it, it's just a renewed sense I'm entering. I'm standing on holy ground. I'm entering the presence of God and listening to think that I can listen to one person of the Trinity speak to another person and pray as the Son prays uh, to God our Father. So it is probably the greatest prayer in all the Bible as we listen to Jesus pray. Now, last week I said in our introduction that the emphasis in this chapter, and you've got to think of this every time you come to this chapter, uh, as Jesus, the great high priest, the emphasis, the th thread that just weaves its way all the way through it is the glory of God. And if you miss the glory of God, you miss John chapter 17. The word glory is found uh, eight times in these verses, five times in verses uh, one to five. So now we're moving to part two of the prayer after Jesus prayed for himself. Now he's going to pray for those 11 apostles uh, who are with him and how the glory of God may be manifested through them. Just look at three phrases with me if you have your scriptures. Uh, for instance, in verse 10, I am glorified in them. Jumping down to verse 22, 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Verse 24, here's one of the most moving, touching passages. Notice he says in verse 24, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. There we have it again, that you have given uh, unto me. And so woven through all this section here is glory. Jesus prays that the glory he laid aside would be restored to him. He prays the glory he has would be uh, manifested through the apostles. And we'll see that same thought is next week uh, for us as well. And the thought that comes to me constantly as I see this prayer is that I'm reminded every time a child of God dies, every time a child of God is facing that, that, that very sacred time where he's going to leave this life and go to the next, and then he goes and from that split second, he goes immediately into the presence of God and all the glory of God and all the holy angels and saints of all the ages. That is an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 24. What did he pray? that they may be with him to behold his glory. I don't know about you, but honest to goodness, I can't wait. I simply can't imagine what that instantaneous split second will be when it's absent from the body and present with the Lord in answer to the prayer of the Lord Jesus. So let's look at this second part two here. Jesus prays for his apostles, verses 9 to 19. Now, the main idea is kind of a lengthy one. You might not catch it all, but here's the way I understand this prayer. If we just took verses 9 to 19 and just condensed it down to a sentence, here's what I wrote. That Jesus prays that his apostles may reveal the glory of God. That's the emphasis. As they experience joy while walking in holiness that is based upon absolute truth in fulfilling their mission. That's the sense of where Jesus, I think, is going with this prayer. Now look at some of these references that might support that. Verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. Verse 10, I am glorified in them. Verse 13, that they may have my joy. Sanctify them, verse 17. Verse 17, your word is truth. I have sent them into the world. What a powerful verses putting together that give us the theme of this prayer for the apostles. Now last week, and I don't want you to miss this, we emphasized at the close of the message, back in John chapter 17, you'll notice in in uh, verse 2, after he says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Notice what he says in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. What a, what a wonderful thing that we saw last week. That God is giving his son, his beloved son, a love gift. And like any of us would want to give a gift to someone we love with all of our heart, we want it to be a meaningful, personal gift that we know that person will treasure. And when you dwell on that verse, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And I don't use that word lightly. To think that you, to think that I am God's love gift to his son. 
You say, well, who in the world would want me? You don't know what I'm like inside your thinking. You don't see all the baggage I come to church with today. You don't know my past. But it's all forgiven. And you're as righteous as Jesus Christ is in God's eyes because of imputation. And now he takes you in eternity past before you were ever born. And he says, I'm going to give you as my love gift to my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we jump from verse 2 and we go down to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people. Notice, whom you gave me out of the world. Then we jump down to verse uh, 12. Or even verse 9, I am praying for those, those whom you have given me, now they are yours. Notice verse 12, those which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them is lost. And then you jump down to verse uh, 24 again, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, as I was thinking on this uh, in today, and I was thinking about, well, okay, I understand that God, the eternal God, he has chosen us and him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of sons. I, I get that. I don't totally understand, but I get the truth of it is. But on the other side, we can see a person sitting there and asking this question. Tell me, how do I know if I am one of those love gifts? If God chose out of the world those whom he's given as a love gift, how do I know if God has chosen me? And I want to give you just a simple answer because I'm a simple person. And the simple answer is this. If you feel a wooing, a small, quiet voice down in your heart and in your spirit and your mind, if you find a wooing to come to Christ and trust Christ as your Savior, I can say without any hesitation, you are one of God's love gifts. I can say that without hesitation. Why would I make a statement like that? Because the more I thought on it, I thought, well, where would the wooing come from to trust and believe and worship and love Christ? It didn't come from the flesh. No man seeks after God, the scriptures say. It surely didn't come from Satan or the demons. Where did it come from? It came from a loving Heavenly Father. And the only ministry, as far as I know, that the third person of the Trinity has today in regards to the unregenerate, unsaved person, the only ministry that he has is one of conviction. When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will convict or convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not in me. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And then he goes on. So if the Holy Spirit is wooing you and convincing you, I need to trust God. Now some of you have been listening to this. Some of you have talked to brothers and sisters. Some of you have listened to Pastor Rob faithfully just give us the gospel and the teaching of the word week by week. But you haven't crossed the line. What do I mean you haven't crossed the line? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word, you've heard it, and believes on him that sent me, Jesus, 
hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but what class? Is passed from death unto life. That's what I mean about crossing the line. You're under death and condemnation. Now you cross the line. You come to the point action of faith. I trust, I believe you, Jesus. And you pass over that line from condemnation to justification, from death to life. And how I pray that some of you will do that today. Time's too short. Doggone it, it's too uncertain. What an awful thing to think that some might quench the Holy Spirit and not respond to his wooing. Then we get word tomorrow through an email, so-and-so was tragically killed last day. And then that unregenerate person for all eternity thinks about the messages that he has quenched the Spirit and rejected Come to Christ if you never have. So the way you know you're one of the love gifts, there's a wooing, the ministry of the Spirit bringing you to Christ. Now, let's look at quickly here three things in Jesus' prayer for his apostles. Okay, three things. First of all is what I call joy yet suffering. Joy yet suffering. I'm picking it up in verse 13. But now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, the context, of course, is sorrow, grief, and pain. Even in today, when we come to a Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday service, there's a solemnity that kind of uh, permeates the congregation. It's just we're dwelling on his awful beatings and suffering and scourging and death on the cross. Uh, but here they are actually having lived with Jesus three and a half years, and now he said he's leaving them. They're disillusioned. They're discouraged. They're down under it all. They're devastated. He's deserting them, even though he told them, yet I will send you another comforter, just like me, the Holy Spirit of God. So Dr. James Boyce in, in his commentary talks about that grief and pain, and he says it's most interesting to me that the first distinguishing mark in the Christian who glorifies God is joy. Joy even in the midst of pain and suffering. Remember Jesus said, the joy I give you, no man can take from you. But now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And on the night of the betrayal, there wasn't a lot of joy going around the disciples. Listen to what Jesus said in the upper room just before he prayed this prayer, just before they left there and started making their way to Gethsemane. Chapter 16. He begins in verse 20. Truly, Truly I say, you'll weep, you'll lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful. Your sorrow will turn into joy. When a, no doubt the resurrection. When a woman is giving birth, mothers, Mother's Day, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born 
into the world. And so here our Lord very tenderly explains to him that even in the midst of all this suffering and pain, they can still have joy. And no man, no demon of hell, nobody can take that joy from you. The joy I gave you, no man gave you, and no man can take it away. And then he uses the mom. And what's he say about the mother? When she's going through those birth pangs, only a mother can understand those words. When she's going through these birth pangs, and she has sorrow and grief and pain. All of a sudden, that baby is born. And how quickly, when she holds that baby to her breast, that that sorrow has been turned to joy. And the thing I want you to notice is the very thing that caused the pain brought the joy. Do you see that? And that's why Jesus used that as an illustration. So that the principle is God brings joy to our life, not by substitution, but by transformation. What do I mean? It means you don't ask to have this pain removed, that's this thing that's causing you pain. That's substitution. And then if that's replaced with something, what? Once again, you're going to have some pain. It's full of life is pain. It's not by substitution, it's by transformation. That's why your joy has nothing to do whatsoever with the circumstances around you. It has everything to do with your presence of your relationship with the blessed Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. I just, I just love that Paul Chesbro uh, in his prayer this morning at, with the elders and pastor yeah, he said, uh, do you remember that song? I think he said it to all of us. Maybe he said it just to me and talking afterwards. But he said, do you remember that song? I, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. I said, oh, yeah. I said, we used to sing that all the time. Great song. And then I thought, I used to teach up at Romney Bible Conference for a, a week's Bible conference, summer after summer. And I remember there was a fellow there. His name was Fred. And Fred was, a, he was an old man. Uh, he was at least 60, so he was very elderly <laughs> to, to me at the time. But I remember Fred saying that he used to take his wife and kids there uh, when they were young, you know, just raising the family. And he said he'd always send his wife and the kids to church and to the Bible study, but he'd stay back because he wasn't a believer. He said, and then one day, he said he was in, inside the little cottage, and he said a, a bunch of little children were outside and they were they were walking by and the teacher was kind of going before them and they were saying I've got the joy 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 down in my heart where joy you remember the song <laughs> and he said he saw and the spirit of God smote him and right there he dropped to his knees and he said Lord I want the joy that those little children have and he trusted Christ he became really the apostle Paul at the first Baptist church of Weymouth years later and he's been with the Lord for many years now. But what I, I thought of that, and I thought, I, I'm, I'm going to go over time. But I had, to, I, had to, I had to add that to my message. It's not there, but I'm, I'm not held accountable. Um, I remember back in 1987, it was one of those great, wonderful experiences. I was asked to teach uh, over in Europe under the office, auspices of the Overseas Christian Servicemen Centers. And today it's called Malachi Ministries. 
But what they did, they had missionaries all over the world, and they would go to places where we had military, American military bases, Army, Air Force, uh, in that case that I was speaking at, but Naval as well. And uh, so the first week they invited me over, we went throughout Germany speaking at different uh, military bases in the chapel. And the thrill to me, the reason I, I just beam up, I guess, when I'm talking about this, is I had left Henry Kassern in Munich, Germany, 25 years earlier. I left there in 1962. This was 1987. And I was able to go back to the very Kassern military base to preach the gospel in chapel when I didn't even know the Lord when I was stationed there as an army soldier. Then we went after that. We went for a couple weeks up to up to Beattenburg, up at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel, and they'd have about, oh, I guess six to 800 servicemen and their families come, and uh, they would stay, I think it was like five days, and then there was a three-day interlude, then the second group would come the next, uh, the next days as well. But anyway, as we were going through Germany, we stayed in one of the homes in Heidelberg of a missionary by the name of Jim Miklas, a wonderful young couple, and he had the sweetest 11-year-old daughter, and remember, she came to me, she said, uh, can I show you and Mrs. Fletcher something that I think you'll find interesting upstairs? And I had no idea what she was going to do. And I said, well, certainly, we'd love to see what that is. So we go up there, and she, she, she points out the window, and uh, there's this Heidelberg, this king's castle. And uh, then she started telling me the background of the story. She says, do you see the flag? I said, yeah. She says, you know what that means? I said, it means hire the person's a patriot or something. I don't know. She said, no. She said, what it means is the king is home. I said, oh. She says, but a lot of times the king travels. And when the king travels, they pull the flag down. Now, this is going back to medieval times as well. And, and she says, that way, if people wanted to see the king and the flag was down, they would know, don't stop. He's traveling. And as soon as she said that, I remembered that saying from years before that I had heard in Bible College or Seminary, that joy is the flag that flies over the castle of the heart when the king is in residence. And I thought, isn't that powerful? Then I thought of Jesus' words, abide in me and let my words abide in you. What is one of the marks of abiding in Christ? Having the king in residence. He says in John uh, 15, 12, that joy itself, uh, verse 11, joy itself is one of the results of when the king is in residence. So when do we give birth, the sorrow turns to joy. And then later on, we find out we enter into a lot of other sorrows of life, don't we? A lot of other painful experiences. But you know, the, the truth is the same. When the king is in residence, I've got joy because joy is the flag that flies over the castle of the heart when the king is in residence. And I've got to add this last third story for this point here. I've got 16 more. Uh, <laughs> but here's where it really touched my heart about joy not being dependent on external circumstances. I was in Uganda, I believe it was 2005, and I was in a maximum security prison uh, in Uganda. You can bring the slide up. And uh, we were having a service, and I believe there were about 1,000, as I recall, uh, prisoners. You can't, they're all around the side like this. And um, 
and 800 of them were in yellow uniforms. The other 120 were in the white. And so I'm sitting up on the platform, and they're as close to me as the people here in the front rows, so I could catch every expression, every, every gesture, the eye, etc. And uh, I finally asked our director, Cyprian Wawamba, I said, Cyprian, I said, uh, why the different colors? By the way, if you go to Barnesville House of Corrections here on the Cape, uh, they wear the color of the uniform based upon their classification as an inmate. So I can see a person walking. I know they're in there for a very serious crime or a, uh, maybe not so serious. Anyway, uh, so I asked him, I said, what's the difference between the white and the yellow? And he looked at me, he says, oh, the ones in white? He says, they've been condemned to death. He says, they're on death row. And then as we talked further, he was telling me that how quickly justice is executed in Uganda. You don't have eight, 10, 12, 13 years of, of uh, uh, waiting upon the courts to reconsider. Judgment comes quickly. He said the civilians will be hanged. Uh, the military people that are in the white, uh, they'll be before a, a firing squad. But the thing that stood out to me is I, I was in this worship service, these people, I'm telling you, they were worshiping, clapping. I could see their face. I could see the smile. I could see the joy. And then I, I heard about that, and I thought, I just wanted to cry. It's not too hard for me to do. But I just, I wanted to weep, and I thought, I gotta, gotta maintain myself here. I can't do that. So then the service was over, and we met, and met with the warden right in the office there. And then all of a sudden, I still heard singing going on out there. And it's all I could say is I didn't understand a word they were singing in their language, but it sounded like a Christian chorus is all I can say. So I finally asked uh, uh, Cyprian, I said, Cyprian, what are they singing out there? He said, oh, that's a song, one of the inmates, and it was one of the death row inmates. He said, that's a, that's a chorus that he wrote that they sing all the time. I said, what's it say? And he said, it said this, even though I am in prison, Jesus is enough for me. Now you think about that. And then they took him back to the hell hole. It's awful. It's the kind of place no human being should ever have to be put. That's all I can say. It's dirty, cement floors, no blankets, no bathrooms. No medicine. But even though I am in prison, Jesus is enough for me. Even though I'm going to be shot or hanged, Jesus is enough for me. So it begs the question, doesn't it? I know some of you are hurting, some of you are going through hard times. I don't know everything going on. I know very little. But I know there's pain here. But even though I am in this situation, is Jesus really enough for me? Jesus says, it is. So one last point about this joy of the Lord Jesus. We know that he experienced joy because why? We saw it before last week. He was to do the will of God for the joy that was set before him enduring the cross, despising the shame. But he could see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. But there's something deeper than that, I really, and I don't want you to miss it. It was the thought going back to verse 5 of John 17 that we closed with last week. But back in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's the deepest. 
There's the most significant motivation there is of how you can have joy regardless of what is happening around you. And think of Jesus, perfect son of God. He knows exactly what is before him every hour, every moment of that hour. And yet it was his return to the Father and the glory he set aside when he took on human flesh that gave him that kind of joy. May I just say to you, and I know for some of us who are older, it might be a little bit easier to say this than for those of you very young. But I hope the idea, the reality, that that split second when you leave this life or you say goodbye to your wife or husband, I hope the thought of absent from the body is present with the Lord and that you will behold him in all of his glory forever. I hope that will motivate you to have this joy that Jesus talks about because there's no greater motivation than that. Moving on to the second part, holiness yet temptation. Verses 14 to 17, they're up there on the screen, you can read it. But as you read that, the Lord makes it plain that when we enter the Christian life, we enter a battleground. It's not a playground. In the previous verses, he was concerned with what? The apostles' security. He says, Father, keep them. But now he's concerned with their sanctity. And he reveals that now we're going to be really in a battleground. We sang about it this morning under Josiah and the team. And he reveals the enemies in verse 15, two of them. Notice he says there in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is true. So here he talks about the world. In fact, he uses the word world 19 times in this chapter uh, uh, alone. And it's the foundation for what he said at the end of chapter 16. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's not you may, it's not if, you will have tribulation. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's not a question, it's not a hypo, it's a fact. We are born unto trouble. The days of our life, there is a spiritual warfare going on. But Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And because I have overcome the world, you are victors over the world. And the joy I'm giving you, no man can take from you. No man gave it to you and they can't take it from you. And the holiness I'm going to produce in your life, they will come after you and they will try to take that. And if you let them, you're going to lose your holy standing and your holy walk. You won't lose your standing in the sense of your position before God. That's settled when you come to the cross. Because the righteousness of Christ was imputed to your account. So he's praying for us and he wants us to realize there's a battle. What is the world? When he says you're in the world but you're not of the world but you're sent into the world. What does he mean by the word world? It's awfully seen not the created world. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. The, the beautiful creation, the ocean we love so much, it shows forth the glory of God. It's not the people of the world. No person is your enemy. No dictator, no murderer. 
They're simply pawns of the enemy. They're tools of the enemy. So what is the world? It is everything surrounding, now listen, everything surrounding us in this life that is not submitted to the sovereignty of God or the lordship of Jesus. And they have rejected the ultimate revelation and truth of God, the Bible, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the world. It's the world, we talk about the world of sports, the world of politics, the world of education, the world of entertainment, the world of music, the world of education. Any system that is not bowed the knee to the Lordship of Christ is the enemy of the Christian trying to tear you down. And when unregenerate people are in charge of these systems, don't be surprised that they could care less about what you believe from the Bible because the world has never been a friend to grace. Never. And yet that's where we live. Sometimes that world is, is a pretty ugly place of the gutter, but it can also be the place of the gourmet. You think about the worldliness and we say uh, uh, the world is the world of penthouse or it can be the world of Picasso. One is dark and one is ugly and devastating. The other, Satan appears as an angel of light and it looks good and attractive. But it's the world and love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the flesh, the flesh of the flesh, and the lust of eyes is not of the Father. It's always an enemy of God. While on earth, Jesus kept his disciples safe from the world. And now as the glorified Lord in heaven, he's able to guard and secure his people with the keeping power of the Father and the Spirit. The exception seems to be in verse 12, doesn't it? All those you have given to me, I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition. Jesus never lost Judas Iscariot. He was never given Judas Iscariot. He was never a love gift from the father to the son. Let me put it this way. Judas is not an example of a believer who loses his salvation that he never had, but an example of an unbeliever, what? Who pretended he had salvation, but had never been born again, was a fraud. And he went out and hanged himself. How scary is Judas Iscariot? The treasurer the person as a disciple you trust the most with your money. And he had it all on the outside, but underneath there was corruption. Just like some of you sitting here today. Some of you have got the right words, you've got the right answers, you've been around it long enough, but deep inside there's corruption. And you better come to terms with it. Time's too short, eternity's too long. Even though the apostles failed the Lord at times, like 
Peter when he publicly denied him. Notice what Jesus said, verse 6, they have kept your word. Verse 8, they have received my words. They have, verse 8, come to know in truth who I am. They have believed. Verse 10, I am glorified in them. You see, Jesus sees the big picture. He knows you're messed up and so am I. He knows we fail. But he sees the big picture. And he says, you know, that person's a believer. That person really loves me. Doesn't always act like it. That person's going to be with me in eternity. He's the love gift of the Father to me. Dio Moody was right when he wrote in his Bible, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And Jesus said, now you're clean through the word which I have spoken you. Sorry in the back, but I skipped over a bunch of stuff. Time's getting away. Uh, just, just realize, please, I know I've said this before, this is the most precious, tangible gift God has given you as a believer. Read it. Meditate on it. We don't want anyone going golfing, fishing, or anything else on a Sunday morning when you ought to be sitting here under the Word of God, and God has given us one of the most faithful, wonderful Bible teachers in the land. Don't goof off. Don't mess it up. Look forward, sit under the Word. You keep growing, you're growing muscle, you're growing fiber, you're getting stronger. And you never know that Sunday that you miss is the Sunday that God was really going to do something in your life. Start the morning every day. Memorize the Word of God. I don't care if you're 90 years old. Don't stop memorizing, or at least do it the best shot you can give it. That way you're going to walk and you're going to think the Bible. Wherever you go, you go through the times of life and the world is hit and you get hit by the blind side. What comes to your mind? The Word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, uh, stands in the way of the unrighteous, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and what? In his law he does meditate day and night. There it is. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to the word. Thy word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not, what? Sin against thee. Thank God for the apostles. Every one of them beaten, mistreated, rejected, martyred. Then we go through church history and people who believe the words of the apostles just like you do, but gave their lives for it. John Wycliffe, morning star of the Reformation. Roman Catholic Church hated John Wycliffe so much because he exposed their hypocrisy and he exposed the fact that they would not let the people read the Bible themselves. They were the custodians of it, and they hated John Wycliffe. And after he died, they took his bones and they burned them. And then they took the ashes of his bones and he went out in a vessel and they shipped him, uh, put him on the ocean water. What a message is there. I think of those dust in the ocean going throughout the whole world. Little did they know, John Wycliffe, I'm talking about it over a thousand years later. John Huss, Savannah Roloff, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, modern day John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Dr. W.A. Criswell, D.A. Carson, on and on the list goes. 
men who would not compromise the inerrancy, infallibility, verbal plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures of God. And I hope you understand every word I just said there. And if you don't, get your study book out. Because they're precious words. Sent yet dangerous, and I'm done. I'm really done on this one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. So he was concerned about their security. Pray that they be kept. Con uh, concerned about their sanctity. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is true. Now he's concerned about, about the fact that they are the sent ones. And he's sending them out. And he says, as you, Father, sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Now they're ambassadors for Christ. Paul said, now that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God beseech us, we pray in Christ's stead. Think of that. We pray in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. You understand what he's saying? In Christ's stead means I stand in the place of Christ as his ambassador. I speak for the king. That's what an ambassador does. He speaks on behalf of the person he's representing. He's an ambassador to the country from another country. He speaks on behalf of that president or prime minister or whoever it is. Let me move down here and then I'm going to close it out. I mentioned the conference we were at over in, in Germany and Switzerland. And right before we went there, I was speaking at a church down in Northern Virginia, McLean Presbyterian Church, and they got wind of what we were doing and going over there and were praying for us. But anyway, after the meeting, a very dignified man came up to me and introduced himself to me. And uh, he was living in Geneva at the time. And he says, how about between the two, uh, two conferences, how about if you come, you and your wife come and stay at our place? He said, we'll show you around. And uh, also he had a Bible study for students from the international school there in Geneva. I found out later and during the conversation that it was uh, Henry Cooper. And uh, one of the fascinating things is when we stayed with him, he was the one leading, and some of you older people might remember, the Star Wars negotiation with the Soviet Union. So you had the two most powerful countries in the world, Soviet Union and America. And they had this big tent out there, and he took me down to it. I mean, you talk about just being in the presence of such power, humanly speaking, and what was taking place there. And uh, it was so wonderful to be with him. But here's the statement I remember he made that, that I wrote down because I knew I, would, I wouldn't remember it. I am President Reagan's personal ambassador at the Star Wars negotiating table, but my greatest delight is to be an ambassador of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to be a witness for him. Beloved, ours is a holy calling. Ours is a high calling. Ours is a heavenly calling. I'm not representing President Reagan as much as a privilege that must have been. But good night alive, we represent the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the God of all heaven and earth. Just think about that. You are my witnesses. Tis the Lord's command. You're my witnesses. I have no other plan. How shall they hear? How shall they believe? Unless on the gospel they believe, for we are his witnesses. And we've got to be a faithful witness and a faithful ambassador. Even as the Father sent me, I sent you. What's that mean? Well, look at Jesus. What did he do? He preached, he taught, he healed, he prayed. Ministered the widow, the orphan, the poor, the prisoner, the sick. He was a man of love, a man of kindness, a man of truth. As the Father sent me, so in the same way I send you. Let's watch this short video.
and then we'll bring the message uh, all to service to a close. But let's watch this video. I want you to watch the white on the screen, okay? And I want you to see how God took leaven, ragtag, uneducated, not cultured people, leaven men. And out of those 11 men, after Jesus went to heaven, said, all the authority is given unto me, I now say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. What's the result 2,000 years later? How powerful is that, the spread of the gospel? I said at the earlier service that I envision a map up there like of Cape Cod and then New England. It wouldn't be great to just see that screen turn white like it did there with the spread of the gospel. And that comes back to Missional May, comes back to the Cape, comes back to Osterville, comes back to you. So whose life has been drastically changed because God used you as his witness? That's not to make you feel guilty, but it's making you feel, I want to be part of that, the greatest thing going on in the world today. I'm going to pray, and Pastor Rob's going to come with a closing comment. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for grace, mercy, love, and your kindness. Help some to cross over today from death to life by the Holy Spirit's empowerment. For us as Christians, oh Lord, help us to be full of joy, holy men of God and women, and that to realize we are important as ambassadors and witnesses sent to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.